turn to John chapter 6, verse 15. Maybe the heading in your Bible says something like, Jesus walks on the sea. About a year and a half ago, we started uh, the church plant in Polina, and in a very real way, we were kind of picking up the mantle of another ministry that was there in uh, Polina for many years, and they had planted and watered, and, and now we might add some more water to that work. And uh, the Lord just put this heart, uh, this scripture on my heart uh, to that Polina church that was so graciously kind of hopping over onto uh, the Calvary Chapel train, you know, or the Calvary Chapel boat or whatever it might be uh, for that ministry there in Polina. And the title that the Lord gave that message on that day was Jesus Cares. And that may be a very real title for today for this passage is that Jesus Cares. And you'll, of course, see you know, where we're coming from with that as we get into the text. Another message that I listened to titled this passage, Straining at the Oars. Straining at the Oars. And so, you know, maybe you'd interchange that. Maybe it's just Jesus walking on water is just kind of like, man, there's something I just need to get my eyes fixed on today. The fact that Jesus cares, something that you need to hear today. Or straining at the oars is somewhere that you're at right now. And so here in John chapter 6 verse 15, I just want to remind ourselves that the purpose of the Bible is not to find ourselves in it and then shape our lives accordingly, but rather to see Jesus revealed And then let him shape us according to who he is. And so in the case of Matthew 14 or Mark chapter 6 or John chapter 6, both, all three passages that tell of this tale, we see Jesus as the creator of the world. Here on the Sea of Galilee, we see him as the king of the Jews, the Messiah of Israel, the savior of the world. Back in chapter 5, we took like four weeks to examine Jesus sharing with the Jews of his identity as God and his authority as God. And then moving into chapter 6, we saw last week Jesus' miraculous provision, multiplying uh, bread and fish, uh, creating miraculous provision in place of the insufficiency of human calculation. Uh, Jesus filled the gap, if you will. And so this passage here, of really the whole chapter of John chapter 6, ties in with the Exodus account. Uh, John is showing that Jesus is the true and better Moses, giving a better manna from the wilderness, and that he just full-on multiplies uh, fish and loaves and just an abundance where the people were satisfied and they had an abundance left over. We're going to see a picture of, of Moses, uh, really Jesus, the fulfillment of Moses here, leading his people through the sea. 
If you were a Jew, you'd be reading this and you'd catch the pictures and the message that was being given here. And so Jesus is a true and better Moses leading his people through the sea. And, uh, and then we're going to see him as the true and better bread sent from heaven. Uh, next week, as we look at the bread of life passage in the latter part of John chapter 6. So, um, this little story of Jesus walking on the sea provides rich insight for us. We're going to see a command and a storm and fear and faith and peace and calm and amazement. That's a whole lot of emotions. Really, the emotions were as high and low as the swells of the sea that day. This passage is one of the clearest pictures of people being in a crisis that was completely outside of their own doings. They had nothing to do with what was, it wasn't because of their sin or their failure or any. They just were where the Lord wanted them to be. And it was all outside of any control that they had on their own. It's going to be encouraging for us today. If you are experiencing any sort of buffeting in your life right now, any sort of rattling of your cage, any sort of trial or torment, you can take heart this morning as we see who Jesus is in this passage. Is anybody there at all in any way, shape, or form? No rattling happening in your heart or mind. No discouragement, depression, anxiety, fear, frustration, anger, wrath. Everyone's good, huh? I'm sure the chapel in the basement feel the same way. They're all doing great. And I think we can close our Bibles and go home then because doing good. Okay. Well, let's go ahead and check out what verse 15 has to say. Remember, this is right after Jesus multiplies the fish and the loaves. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Remember last week, man, the end of this fish and loaves passage, the people were like, this guy is like Moses. He's that prophet that Moses must have been speaking of in Deuteronomy 18 that one will come after me, him you shall hear. And truly, Jesus is that prophet, but their application of that knowledge wasn't correct. These these Galileans' application of that knowledge was that, wow, if he's this prophet, then we've got to make him our leader, our commander-in-chief. We'll raise up an army, and we will take out the Romans who've been oppressing, oppressing us for hundreds of years. Jesus saw revolution in their eyes. And so he said, this isn't why I've come. This isn't my time. I've got to get away from this. And frankly, disciples, I'm afraid that you're going to get a little bit of the leaven that's coming from these guys' attitude. So I'm going to send you aside as well. It's really a crazy um, truth that was happening in the time of Jesus. I mean, he's going around doing these miracles. It's super exciting. They're oppressed by the Romans. Before the Romans, it was uh, the Medo-Persians. Before the Medo, or rather, before the Romans, it was the Greeks. Before the Greeks, it was the Medes and the Persians. Before the Medes and the Persians, it was the Babylonians. I mean, Israel has been in all sorts of dire straits. And here's this guy that fits the bill of this prophet, the Messiah, the Christ. And naturally, I'd probably join right in with him. I'd be like, hey, let's get this guy to bring freedom. After all, that's what it's all about, right? Now, I think that this is quite applicable for us in our day and age. For those of you who have never read Ben-Hur, 
Have you seen the movie Charlton Heston? Man, amazing, great movie. There's even a new version of Ben-Hur that's really good as well. When I was, uh, oh, about 23 years old, um, I, knew, I knew that I had family connections to General Lew Wallace, who had written uh, Ben-Hur back in the late 1800s. He actually got saved while he was writing this book, Ben-Hur, A Tale of the Christ, while he was the ambassador of the United States over in the Jordan area. And uh, General Lew Wallace, as he writes, he starts out book one. There's like three books to the book. You know, it's one of those books, you know. And uh, I'm telling you, you got to read Ben-Hur, okay? Get the version with pictures in it. That's all I got to say. That just kind of helps along the journey. But book one is this incredible um, Christmas story that uh, it's as if you were kind of behind the scenes of Christmas, uh, and Ben-Hur begins that way. But there's this struggle in Ben-Hur because Judah Ben-Hur is a man who is a revolutionary. He's someone that wants to see freedom for his people from the Romans. And as he is kind of a third person watching from a distance, this Messiah Christ in Galilee healing, doing miracles, performing signs and wonders, he's starting to raise an army so that when the minute this this Messiah, the minute this Christ, the minute this fish and bread multiplier says, you know, rise up, let's go take back our land. Judah Ben-Hur would have an army ready to be at this Messiah's beck and call and they will go kick some Roman tail and whip them out of Judea. But there's this wrestle that's happening in Judah as the book goes on, as he's talking to one of the wise men in the book, one of his wise counselors, Because the wise counselor is starting to see that perhaps the big revolution that this Jesus of Nazareth is trying to push isn't so much a political revolution of a worldly kingdom, but a revolution of men's hearts. And that just doesn't make sense to Ben-Hur, Judah Ben-Hur. The Ben-Hur means son of her. So when you just call him son of her, it's a little weird, you know, son of him. Okay, uh, and so there's this wrestle, like, no, there's got to be a war, there's got to be, and, and to just watch that wrestle go over to understanding his need for a savior for his sins primarily. You guys, we live in a day and age where we are just like the Galileans, okay? We live in a culture that is a lot like the Galileans, and I look around right now, and you know what I see in the eyes of the people of Crook County? Revolution. I see a tired eye when I look into my friends and when I look into the mirror, honestly. I, I'm a patriotic guy and I come from a people of patriots. One of my ancestors was a revolutionary war hero that fought for religious freedom, specifically against tyranny of the English or the British um, against religious freedom. And so I've, I've kind of got that in my DNA and I've got that bent and yet in all of this, and there may be times where that's good and right, maybe even in this season, we must remember that before revolution for political change comes to our eye, we desire to see revolution of men's hearts. That we see men know the gospel of Jesus Christ and be transformed from the inside out. And so I ask you, 
As much as you've been posting on Facebook regarding politics and election fraud and this, that, and the other, or not posting, and good on you if that's you, as much as you maybe even have a burden to see justice for racial discrimination or social injustice that, is, that have taken place, good on you as well. As much as you've been championing the various causes that are out there today, have you been opening up your mouths and being making known the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ that truly brings life and liberty and a real unadulterated pursuit of happiness? Because guys, that's what matters. Before you go waving a flag, of any country, or any candidate, or any position, wave the banner of the Lord Jesus Christ and his mercy and his forgiveness of sins. And if you're not there yet, then you're not ready for any revolution of any kind, left, right, or in the middle. And Jesus knew that. And so he himself went up on a mountain to pray, And he sent his disciples away from all of the hubbub and hubbubaloo. Said, you guys need to get away from this and get the right perspective. Now, as we go through this passage, Mark chapter 14 tells the story. Uh, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 14 tells the story. Mark chapter 6 tells the story. And so if you'll permit me, we're going to kind of hop around between the different gospel accounts because they... Each gives, some, each gives some really unique information to the story that I think is helpful um, even to us in these days and age. And so Matthew tells us in Matthew 14, 23, I even have kind of color-coded the screens for you just a little bit, so you'd be like, oh, a light taupe is Matthew. Oh, a dark brown is Mark. You should look at my notes. I've got colors of all the colors of the rainbow that help my mind uh, stay somewhat organized. But Matthew's version, chapter 14, verse 23, says, When he'd sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now, when evening came, he was alone there. Has the beginning of an epic Christian rap song to it, doesn't it? When he sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain to pray. I'm sending that to Toby Mac. Nobody take credit for it. When you hear it on K-Love, just remember where it came from, okay? So in the midst of this whole, like, oh, perhaps it's time for an uprising, Jesus, the candidate of choice, got away. And he went to be with the Father. He went by himself on the mountain to pray. And you know what? If Jesus, the creator of the world's God incarnate, found the necessity of time and concentrated prayer with the Father, do you think that's something that we should maybe follow suit? Do you think that's something? Of course, it's a rhetorical question. We ought to grow in the school of prayer with Jesus. John had just shown us what an urgent occasion for prayer it was. When evening came, it tells us from Matthew's passage that time had passed 
It was later on in the day the final folks from the crowd had made it back to their homes. And our passage in John chapter 6 verse 16 says, When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. Matthew and Mark tell us it was much more of a command. Matthew 14, 22, he made the disciples or invited them or strongly encouraged them to get into the boat. Jesus knew what was uh, in the people's hearts. He knew this necessity of getting away with Jesus. Rather, getting away and being by themselves in just a little bit, it would be with Jesus. And so he sent them on into the boat. Forgive me, my iPad just died. So I'm going to go to my much smaller screen. (laughs) Try to make sense of these notes. You know when Thanksgiving comes around and your kids think they need to play on your iPad all weekend long? (laughs) Okay. Uh, He told them to get into the boat and... uh, Thank you. If you just grab another iPad from out there, I can just load it right back up. Uh, To go ahead and get into the boat, making his disciples get into the boat. He invited them into the boat, or he strongly urged them to get into the boat as they would go across this Sea of Galilee. I mentioned this last week, but the Sea of Galilee, it's difficult for me to call it a sea, when really it's more like a great lake, you know. It's kind of the size of Klamath Lake, if you've ever been down through Klamath Falls, Uh, And so, you know, to call it a sea, uh, it really is a big body of water. How wonderful in this day and age, you can Google image search. Um, You can uh, go to videos where people are out on boats. Uh, And even today, of course, you can go on a trip to Israel and ride on a boat on these exact paths, which is a pretty exciting thing. But he made them, urge them to go ahead and get into the boat. Our verse 17 says, so they got into the boat and went over the sea towards Capernaum. So let's go ahead. I'm sorry, Heidi. Heidi's doing a great job. She just stepped up to the occasion these days to run. Let's show that map one more time because it will give us just a little bit of an idea. Tiny map, of course. But in the top right of the screen, you see Bethsaida. Okay, that's the area where he multiplied the fish and the loaves. And, and then there's a little boat there, a little cartoon boat right in the middle of the sea. And that's generally the path that would be taken by these sailors to go uh, over to the north, uh, northwest side of the sea called Capernaum, uh, which was Jesus' headquarters of ministry. So really they're going across that top you know, forehead of the Sea of Galilee. And as they get in the boat, they're heading towards Capernaum. We already knew that it was evening, but here we see that it's dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. So something that it was at the moment is that it was dark. Something that was not at the moment was that Jesus was not with them. I think it was D.A. Carson said that so often whenever there is darkness, that's synonymous with where Jesus is not. Okay, and so not to be super, you know, metaphorical or picturesque in it, but it was dark and Jesus wasn't there. Those are always times where your heart may get just a little bit troubled. Okay, and uh, verse 18, and then the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. This arising or arosing of 
This sea has sin in him such as aroused or stirred up or awakened. And it speaks of being aroused completely. So those of you that have good kiddie pools in your backyard, you know, and you've had the great splash times with your kids, there's little splashes. And then there are great and mighty waves that you can make that will cause your children to even slip off their little inner tubes that they're floating on. And that's really, that's a completely, you know, boisterous, sea that is taking place at the time. Now, when you look at the geography of the Galilee region, north of the Sea of Galilee is the Jordan River. It flows into the Sea of Galilee. And north of the the headwaters of the Jordan River is Mount Hermon. It's a snow-capped mountain, one of the only snow-capped mountains that you see when you're in Israel. And the cold winds that would often come down out of Mount Hermon through the narrow Jordan Valley and into the warm Galilee regions. And I'm no meteorologist, so those of you that are are probably rolling your eyes right now. But they typically would stir up massive waves. And I remember when I was first studying this passage as a teenager, my preachers speaking of great um, waves that would knock out hotel windows. Uh, Modern-day hotel windows would be knocked out by these Galilean waves, and that there were newspaper articles that they possessed uh, that showed this. If you uh, would listen to Tenney write about it, he says that the Sea of Galilee is 600 feet below sea level in a cup-like depression among the hills. When the sun sets, the air cools, and as the cooler air from the west rushes down over the hillside, the resultant wind churns up the lake. Since the disciples were rowing toward Capernaum, they were heading into the wind. Consequently, they made little progress. And so, verse 19 of our text in John 6 says, So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were afraid. Now, there's a couple important things to know of application as we are here. And it's that when Jesus sent the disciples into the boat, he sent them into the boat to go across the sea, to go back to Capernaum. He didn't say, hey guys, go ahead and hop in the boat, go halfway across the sea, and drown a violent shipwreck death. I mean, that's not what he said. He said, you've got a destination, you're going that way, And so start heading that way. And the picture is that as Jesus is up on the mountain praying, and when you go to Israel, you can just picture this great. He's up on the mountain praying. He's over the Sea of Galilee, up on the Mount of Beatitudes area, really farther east. He's looking down over the whole panorama of the Sea of Galilee. He sees very easily, it would be an easy spot to spy the boat out there on the waters that the guys are on. And the the waters become become tumultuous. They become torturous. In fact, as you look at the different languages that the different gospel writers use, uh, they use the word that Jesus saw them straining at the oars. The word straining means torture. Okay, They were tortured at the oars. Now, I don't know much about you know, rowing or being a captain of a boat. I've done a couple, you know, little river rafting trips where I got to row and show my skills. And I have to say, I did pretty good. Right, Pat? You were there. I think you got dropped in the water about the time I was rowing. Got that really bad sunburn. Okay, anyways. But, you know, 
the furlongs and the different uh, stadia language that are used for how far the disciples rode, it, it equals, man, about two to three miles that they had been rowing already. Just rowing across, you know, the sea. No doubt had some really amazing guns, you know. But as they're rowing across the sea, the boisterous waters came. It was torrential waves. And as they're going, it, you know, the language from Mark, especially chapter 6, is that Jesus looked down and he saw them straining at the oars. Now, a couple artwork things are being shown here. And one man mentioned that a great painting by Rembrandt here shows the disciples straining at the oars and taking on water and taking on the waves. And then another famous picture of Jesus praying on the mountain. In fact, in this picture of Jesus praying on the mountain, all that I could find, uh, you see in the background the Sea of Galilee there. And, and the preacher that I was listening to said, man, we got great paintings of the guys in the boat and the guy on land, but someone's got to do a good picture for us. Come on, all you aspiring artists of Jesus going down and going onto the water to rescue those who are in the boat. This considerable distance of land put the disciples in a predicament. They felt scared. They're in the middle of the sea, Matthew 14, 24 tells us, and they were tossed or tortured or tormented by the waves. Straining at rowing, Mark tells us. The wind was against them. Maybe you've got the ESV version that says that they were beaten by the waves. The wind was against them. Or the NIV, buffeted by the waves. William Barclay says, up on a hillside, Jesus had prayed and communed with God. And as he set out, the silver moon had made the scene almost like the daylight. And down on the lake, he could see the boat with the rowers toiling at the oars. He had not forgotten. He was not too busy with God to think of them. Now, the temptation is always to maybe become very allegorical when no allegorical interpretation is needed, but you'll have to permit me to go this direction because I think that we all oftentimes find ourselves in a predicament like the disciples where really we're, where the Lord has called us. We're in a place where God has placed us. And then really for reasons outside ourselves, we find ourselves in the stormy sea. That's why James says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Because it, it, it's really always that falling, isn't it, into those trials? Count it joy when you fall into them. And usually the fall has pain involved. You know, Tatum was visiting cousins this weekend and got distracted by a kitty cat and fell into a cardboard box. And she's just got this line of a bruise on her face. And it's just so every time you got, you're just like, oh, it looks so sad that you're hurting. It's clear that, that that has got to hurt. And she tells this cute little story about it. But I don't know if she was counting it joy when she fell. And I'm sure every time you've fallen, it's probably the same. We, we curse and we shout and we're aggravated and we're frustrated that we have just fallen into this trial. No wonder the disciples who were seasoned fishermen and great sailors said the same. How did we get ourselves into this predicament? And I really believe that we, as a nation and as a culture perhaps, find ourselves in a stormy sea for reasons outside of ourselves, and maybe even reasons inside of ourselves, things that we, of course, have maybe brought on through sin or error or both. But we've got to remember that we aren't alone. 
We've got to remember that Jesus cares. And though Jesus is in a place right now where he appears to be up on a mountain and so far and distant from us, the book of Hebrews tells us that he is at the right hand of the Father and he ever lives. The end of the verse says he always lives to make intercession for us. So we find ourselves in a place similar to the disciples. Jesus isn't right here. We seem to be in a place of darkness. We've got all kinds of boisterous things around us that are causing anxiety and causing our hearts to flip and twist and turn, causing us to swim in our beds at night. All kinds of sad things, all kinds of frustrating things. And maybe even there are things that you have brought on yourself. It's sin that you've done. It's decisions that you've made that have brought you into these trials and tribulation. The good news is that Jesus still is praying for you. Jesus is still on that Mount Zion, and he ever lives to pray for you. And there's a sliver, silver sliver from the moon, and he's aware of what's happening in your life. And he won't leave you alone. And so my encouragement is going to be that of the that of the disciples, that you would call out to him when you see him, and perhaps you see him today. They looked up and they saw Jesus at the fourth watch of the night. They'd been rowing for some eight hours, and he's there with them at some time between 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. It's dark still. It's something scary at that, you know, still a little bit fearful at that time, and he's walking on the sea. I think it's Mark that tells us that he would have passed them by. He came and he approached their boat in all of its stress, and he would have just passed them by had they not cried out to him. There's something about God's sovereignty here and that he is sovereignly pursuing and going after those in distress. And there's something about the cry of men calling out to his action, or else he would have passed them by. And it's interesting, we don't really know, but would he have passed them by? Would he have gone on by? It says that when they did see him, they were afraid. It speaks of them being put to flight and terrified and frightened. Mark tells us in 6, 49 and 50, that when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost or an apparition, or a spirit, and they cried out. I've got to be honest with you guys. I was actually just having dinner with uh, Ian Moog the other night, and we both were talking about this separate from this sermon. We were just like, man, isn't that crazy that, that the disciples were scared when they saw Jesus? Like, wouldn't it just be like, all right, about time you showed up and just go about your day? But have you ever been in situations, anything like this, where... You're scared, you're stressed, maybe it is dark. I'll be honest, like I'm one of the first guys to get scared when I'm out in the dark too long, kind of by myself, my flashlight's broke, I'm in some place spooky. One too many Frank Peretti novels did I read when I was in middle school. There's something behind every corner, you know? And, uh, and, and I often think too, like, oh, well, if my friends were there, like 11 other dudes in a boat with me, and Jesus shows up, it'd be like, oh, Jesus is here, everybody. But no, all of them freaked out, think it's a ghost, crying out, screaming, ah! right? That's what's happening here. Yeah, you know how it is. Would have been a great opportunity 
a great opportunity to just, you know, seem pretty chill and cool and calm. And of course, Jesus is coming. He told us to go to the other side of the lake. But they were afraid. They forgot that Jesus is the one who would say, I will never leave you. I will come to you. But he says to them in verse 20, Do not be afraid. It is I. Or, it is I. Do not be afraid. The literal language says, I am. Is what he says. I am. Which in John is a statement of deity that Jesus would often use. I am. I'm God. Do not be afraid. Be strong. Be of good courage. You've forgotten that I said I'd never leave you. You know, right now we have a child that is uh, really scared of almost everything. And chip off the old block, I'm telling you, you know, like literally can't go into the room, the next room. Like so scared. And I'm just trying to speak encouragement into him. And I think we're going to do a little reenactment of this story tonight at bedtime of, you know, the waves and the bouncing of the bed, you know, and all of that. And But Jesus is with you. Be strong. Be of good courage. He is God. He knows your name. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. And there's this command. It's called a present imperative. It means you've got to do this now. You've got to stop being afraid. I tried that approach this weekend, you know, and going to go get a candy bar. Too scared to go in the other room to get a candy bar. And it's just like, stop being afraid. Like, I'll talk to you the whole time you're going to get it. No, I'm, can you hear my voice? Don't be afraid. I'm right here. We're tethered by voice, you know? It's like a walkie-talkie. Don't be afraid. And sometimes it's just hard to just have that imperative spoken to you. Stop it. You know, it's pretty futile and, and fruitless to just tell people to stop it unless they know the reason behind stopping it. The reason behind stopping with the fear was because it is I. I'm him. It's me, Jesus. I'm here. Be of good cheer. Be courageous. The early interpretation of this took the early church to Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 5. It says, But now thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name, and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt for your ransom, Ethiopia and Seba in your place. Since you were precious in my sight, you've been honored, and I have loved you. Therefore, I will give men for you and people for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your descendants from the east and gather you from the west. Did you catch that? When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. The prophets spoke it. The disciples knew it, and there were, they were passing through the waters. Where are you, Jesus? Now, Matthew gives us an interesting account that John doesn't give. In Matthew chapter 14, verse 28, so they see this ghost, and they're afraid. And Peter answers him. 
It says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. You know, Jesus kind of lets this whole Lord, if it is you thing slide. You know, he's kind of being gracious, like, of course it's me. Who else would it be? And if it's not me, why do you want to come out to him? <laughs> Jesus is kind of gracious to hold foot in the mouth, Peter, at the moment. And Peter says, hey, if it's you, command me or give the orders. Call me and urge me on. Of course, it is Jesus. So verse 29 of Matthew chapter 14 says, so he said, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. And when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid and began to sink. He cried out saying, Lord, save me. Again, we have that word boisterous, that the water was boisterous. Even while Jesus was walking on it, it was still boisterous. And Peter got handed to him, level of faith there, even though, you know, sticking the foot in the mouth, still level of faith, I'll come out with you. I'll, if you call me, I'll come out with you. And so the Lord does this incredible thing. He calls Peter out there. Didn't have to. No, 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 Peter. Just stay there. I'm getting in, you know. And it says, all right, come on out. See the things that you can do when I'm with you. There's a level of faith that's happening there. But what application for us when he started looking around at the world around him. He saw the raging seas. He saw the boat bobbing up and down. He saw that it was dark. He saw that it was a stormy night. And he was scared. Getting his eyes off of Jesus and onto the storm around him, he begins to sink. Great application for us in 2020. Getting our eyes on the storm around us, eating anxious bread, as the psalmist says, worried about everything that's going to happen, and not having our eyes on Jesus, not prayerful about Jesus, not remembering that Jesus has called us to go somewhere. We have a destination. We're going to the other side of the lake. And for some reason, we've forgotten that. And now we're thinking he's going to kill us here. He's going to kill us in America. This is how it goes. This is how it all ends. We're dead. Kaput. No, we got to remember the big picture, the sovereignty of God. He's not surprised by anything one way or another. We can trust in him. We can rest in him. We can put our eyes on him. We can climb out of the boat and we can just be in the storm, feet wet in the waves with him. But if we're going to get our eyes on the storm and we're going to make too much of, you know, the crest of that wave and the crest of this wave and the slapping of the wave against the boat, and that was loud. And I hear all my friends in the boat screaming and they think that it's a ghost and their heart is beating fast and their blood pressure is up. Then guys, we're going to sink just like Peter. And Jesus says, of course, so compassionately, immediately and fast. Stretching out his hand, this is, remember, this is Matthew's version, caught him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Just like Jesus had called the disciples to go across the lake to Capernaum, not to drown in the middle of the lake, so had he called Peter to come out on the water, to be with him, not to drown in the middle of the lake, once again, Oh, ye of little faith. You forgot the big picture. You forgot what was going on. You got your eyes on the stuff around you. And Jesus even says in the parable of the sower that there is a seed that when they see the cares of this world going on around them, they get choked out. Their seed dies. It cannot bear any fruit. 
Be so cautious that you don't let the cares of this world right now choke out the seed that's been planted by the gospel in your heart. And so our passage tells us in John 6, 21, this is after Peter did the great thing of the walking on the water and Jesus rescuing him again, that they willingly received him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. After being rescued by Jesus, by this God-man dwelling on earth with us, not a ghost, they were happy, they were willing, they desired and enjoyed taking hold of Jesus and bringing him into the boat. Once they did that, they were where they were going. And so as we get ready to close, and Joy, if you want to come on up, I want to encourage you guys today. You know, it's been said that you're either in a trial right now, or you're going to be going into a trial, or you're coming out of a trial. Like, one way or another, there's, there's like this circle of trials that the Lord allows to happen in our life. And maybe I would just ask you right now, I was just with, all weekend, my heart was just stirring and I don't know if you are a note taker or if you've got a pen with you or if you've got a notepad in your cell phone. But I want you to just maybe close your eyes right now and just ponder for a minute. What is the storm that you're going through right now? And maybe it's something way outside of yourself. You know, we know our nation's going through storms of various kind. We know our people our society, various storms, the health, pandemic, the mandates and the lockdowns. And man, there's, there's big things like that. I think no matter what, we all kind of are encompassed in that. But as you're pondering, maybe the Lord would just, maybe it's clear or maybe you need the Lord to show you that you're in these choppy waves in your marriage or in your parenting or in this sin that's just got a hold of you, a relationship, addiction, disease, your business is struggling, on the verge of bankruptcy, can't pay your bills, whatever it is. Maybe you'd write down right now just the things that the Lord is just bringing to mind and just in a sense you're writing it down and you just hear him saying, I see it and I know it. And I'm here. But as Mark tells us, Jesus would have passed the disciples by if they hadn't called out to him, as if they hadn't received him, welcoming him gladly into the boat. And for some reason, we just, we kind of like making it on our own and going through the trials on our own. And we kind of like the trial to continue because then we can complain and other people complain with us and misery loves company and we get people's pity and we get to kind of have an excuse to be 
ticked off and mad and frustrated all the time and kicking things. When the Lord is here, He desires that we welcome Him into our boat. And when we welcome Him into our boat, like Mark says, the wind ceases. The wind ceases. The storms, though they may continue, there's a peace, there's a calm, as Paul says, that passes understanding. And John, Matthew, Mark, they all tell us that when this happened, there was a great amazement. And they worshipped Jesus. And they said, truly this must be the Son of God. Incredible miracle in John that they blink and they're at their port of destination. Like amazing. They, They knew that he was the Son of God after this. Which is why John was written, remember, John 20, 31. And so today, I invite you, church, as you've maybe made a note of the wind and the waves that you are in and how you are straining at the oars currently. The up and the down and the tumult and the torture that it is. And you would welcome Jesus into your boat. We're going to close with this song, Oceans. And I don't know if, uh, I would encourage actually the, the basement and the chapel to just stay tuned into this channel right now. And just let joy lead us in this song, Oceans. And, and if you're here today, and you, you know this is a word for you. And you need to invite Jesus into the boat of your life to bring a peace to your heart and give you right perspective to your trials. Then during this song, I want to ask you to stand. This is not an invitation for just everybody to stand right now. This is really if you need prayer, if you need Jesus to come into your marriage, your home, your parenting, your business, your decisions, your habits, your speech, your care about the government, the election, the pandemic, all of these things, you know you need Jesus in the boat and right perspective with him in it. You need to worship him and be astounded at who he is in the midst of the trial. Or maybe you're watching from home today and you know this is a word for you. Just ask you to stand where you are And I'm going to pray for you at the end of this song. We're going to have brothers and sisters just lay hands on you. I'm just going to pray over your heart for peace. So let's let the words of this song minister to us. You don't have to stand up right away, but 
Maybe as the song is ministering to you, you just know that the Lord's saying, this is for you. I want you to stand today. You got revolution in your eyes. You got fear in your eyes. You got that you think I'm a ghost in your eyes. You're trusting in other stuff. You're trusting in your navigational skills, your boat, your fisherman background. Forget all of that. Trust in me today. Receive me willingly into your boat. And as that's the case for you today, stand during this song. Go ahead, Joy.